Hello and welcome to another episode of Research Radio, a podcast of the Economic and Political Weekly. I am Divya and I will be the host for this session with Rajat Roy, who will be discussing his work on Dalit political subjectivity. Rajat Roy is an assistant professor of political science at Presidency University, Kolkata. His research work is centered on the politics of Dalit literature and the question of Dalit political subjectivity. As an ethnologist working in the discipline of political science, Rajat Roy's research follows an interdisciplinary methodology of social anthropology as well as political theory. As a young scholar, he has published his original research work in several journals, including EPW. He has also contributed book chapters in edited volumes. And with this, we begin our session. Hello, Rajat. Hello, Divya. Hi. Many thanks, Divya, Johan, and the EPW team for inviting me and to be a part of this podcast. I really feel delighted to talk about my recent as well as past work, some of which have been published with EPW. So thank you again, and I look forward to having a fruitful conversation. Thank you, Rajat. Um, so my first question to you. At the beginning of your paper titled From Post-Colonial Irony to Dalit Truth, mm-hmm. A Perspective on Experience, you present two situations to the readers. One is that of C.V. Raman, who is a scientist, and the second situation is that of Eklavya from the epic Mahabharata. Through both these examples, you argue that caste is a structure based on service and debt. It is an anti-experience and thus anti-existence as well. There is no experience of invention in the Hindu life world. There is only pluralities of ritual experiences of figures like Raman and Eklavya. Can you please throw light on this? Thank you, Divya, uh, for the question. So let me reiterate what I have unraveled in my first paper to answer the question you just raised. Uh, but let me first clarify one thing, that when I used Raman's example, scientist Raman's example, I did not hint that scientists cannot be or have not been religious or dogmatic in the past, or they are not in the present. That's not my intention, which I kind of spoke about. Uh, now, the context in which I speak of religious faith and belief in this article, in the first article, is within Hinduism, mm-hmm. whether it is publicly or privately practiced. So what mm-hmm. remains a riddle to us in practicing Hinduism is the elements of caste, whether in forms of rituals, rites, ceremonies, customs, deities, theologies, whichever way we want to look at. This is a central problem I try to map in that issue, whether or whether publicly or privately practiced, being Hindu has something to do with our caste position. Again, whether the Hindu is a scientist or not. So it is in this context, I must say that post-colonial theory has not been sincere enough to look at caste and Brahminical ideology critically. As much as it has explored the political questions like, you know, nation. So neither has it paid enough attention to the question about religious epistemologies and the orthodox doctrine and the social prevalence of caste, which is so pervasive in India. And I think that, you know, kind of post-colonial theory has not been sincere enough. So this has resulted in either reaffirming thousands years old Brahmanical domination or in their appropriation of Eurocentric conception of political subjectivity. Here, I must say that I am speaking of a particular post-colonial theory which has developed in India and not post-colonial theory which is 
you know, kind of the general post-colonial theory, which is that of developed through anti-colonial experiences. Mm-hmm. So in their war against European colonial encounters, the Indian variant of post-colonial theory is overemphasis on aspects of construction of subject, knowledge. These have led to the silencing of the socio-religious structure and the effects of Brahmanism in Indian society. Thus, I feel all the so-called life worlds, you know, the plural life worlds depicted by this Indian post-colonial theory, they need to be scrutinized and to be placed within the absolutely local languages and functioning of Brahmanism and alongside European colonialism and reorient history and political knowledge. So the logic of caste, now from post-colonial theory to the logic of caste. The logic of caste as I explored in the paper is dependent on the uniqueness of Brahmanical ideology. I am consciously saying this is a unique structure. Let me elaborate why do I call Brahmanical structure as very unique. And this is also linked with the idea of Eurocentric post-colonial theory that claim that, you know, European, uh, sorry, the post-colonial theory has been Eurocentric. Now, I think this uniqueness lies uh, at the logic of debts and services to the dharma, to the culture, community, the god, the rituals one belongs to by performing them. And who is this one or the subject in Brahmanical Hindu structure has been the central question, which I mm-hmm. tried to address in this. Mm-hmm. So by being Hindu means placing oneself within the debt services of caste structure in a graded manner. One of the easiest way to study this aspect of placing oneself within caste is to scrutinize the ritual practices as well as theological doctrine, which are operational and socially followed by the Hindus. Here, I have followed basically Ambedkar's conceptualization of caste as caste or the singular notion of caste that is Brahmanism as ideal or the being or the essence of caste analogy, which Ambedkar developed. And as well as Ambedkar also showed that caste is never singular, it also exists in plural, which is that of the imitative or excommunicating pluralities of caste as different social groups and their practices. So you can, uh, you know, think about numerous jatis which are coexisting with each other and also excommunicating or imitating. Mm-hmm. What remains interesting in Hinduism, which has also infected other religious communities near the Hindus, that is different castes have been created in other religions, is that the services or dates are graded. And so is one's locus in the structure. It is these social positions and the different grades of the dates paid to the imaginary dharma order which makes Raman and Eklavra cases similar, as in both are paying debt to an unseen and naturalized code of conduct by performing ritual actions. These rituals are not equal in nature, rather they differ along the lines of caste grade, an aspect which Ambedkar brilliantly calls as parallel habit. So if I extend the example of Brahman Raman's ritual bath to an individual from a low caste or an untouchable context, we may not find similar ritualistic practice, but we do find other infinite numbers of practices being performed. These materially differing practices or rituals might be many or numerous in number, but their services or practices as ideological ground remains intact. So we all are paying debt. Mm -hmm. This ideological service or debt is what I 
call following Ambedkar as Brahmanism. It is this very aspect of plural or parallel habits in a singular structure which makes this society unique. In it, the life world of a religious Hindu is encoded within her caste, whether it is her occupation, her cultural recognition, her social status, the religious deity she pays obeisance to, the religious rites, ceremonies, political power, language, food, her habits, her customs, her environment, social and spatial location. Whichever way you want to study, you will find this life world has been inhabited by Brahminical ideology. This social emplacement of SARS makes it anti-existent and anti-experience as well, as it is bound by the singular notion of caste or Brahminical ideology. So caste as singular is what is Brahminism and caste as plural is what is excommunicating parallel habits. Except that of a certain individual mobility, there is nothing new possible in a life of servitude, which Brahmanism offers us. I make this argument keeping in mind the later day scholars of caste who observe that there have been some cases where we find certain mobility in occupation, status, power, etc. within caste. I do not disagree with such a point. There are numerous castes, especially from the low caste and its untouchable caste, which have been able to acquire political power. And they have also been able to improve their social position, occupational status, etc. But what remains a point of concern to us is that we have not been able to see formations which have been successful in sustaining casteless communities. Such is the power of Brahminical anti-experience service-based ideology. This is an essentialist pessimism which one may come across when one is thinking of Brahmanism and its caste manifest manifestations in India. Nevertheless, this does not depict the whole problem, I think. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. I think there are many modern-day Eklavyas and Ramans who participate in the ideology. It is pessimistic, but it is not the whole problem. Is that why Ambedkar's statement, unfortunately, I was born a Hindu, untouchable, but I will not die a Hindu, crucial? Also, in your second paper titled Politics of Identity, Contra Anti-Caste Social Visions, The Matua Problem and Beyond, um, you share an example of a Matua leader who doesn't actually revere goddess Saraswati, but places her photo in the shop to get accepted by his upper caste friends. So, through these life world examples, which are reflective of a decision for a social separation and appropriation, so in such difficult situations, how do we think of a Dalit subject? Yeah, thank you, Divya. Thank you for bringing out uh, this continuous uh, kind of, you know, separation, separatist, social separatist tendencies, and as well as uh, appropriation within Hinduism, kind of, you know, this nuanced relation mm. between uh, caste and anti-caste. Thank you so much. Mm. Uh, okay, so let me uh, answer this question, keeping in mind the last answer, which ended on a very pessimistic note as you rightly pointed out. So, uh, which is that of, you know, caste servitude is essential in nature and there is no escape from it. So there are two issues to address here. One is that of the Indian variant of post-colonial theory being Eurocentric on the question of political subject. And the second aspect is that of the plurality of life worlds in a caste society and Dalit politics. And mm -hmm. both are explored uh, in this paper. Mm -hmm. Now, first let me address this 
uh, uniqueness. Uh, because I want to uh, explain and think about this uh, post-colonial theory being Eurocentric through this uniqueness of Hindu Brahminical caste society a little more. As following Ambedkar's footsteps, uh, we can say that Hindu Brahminical society is a graded distribution of sovereignty. What follows from our earlier answer is that castes are manifestations of Brahminical ideology of singular caste. In this mode, all castes, even the outcasts or the untouchables, are also included within Hindu religion. Everyone is included theoretically, whether it is the Renaissance Neo-Vedantic thinking or in the Gandhian Hindu schema. Everyone is included, included as well as appropriated in the national culture, in political language, in state politics. And it does not end there. Everyone is included by the colonial state and by the enumerators in the decennial census. For, see, for example, the first 1871-72 census in which the religious category Hindu incorporates a large section of masses. Okay. Now, despite everyone being included, everyone is placed in a graded manner along the Varna Jati or caste grade. This is more interesting to note that even the untouchables are also included in this Hindu schema. So we all are theoretically and theologically as well as politically included and simultaneously socially graded. Hmm. These gradations are also the spaces for caste as plurality or as parallel habit or function. So here everyone is included by, but the power or sovereignty is graded and untouchable falls in that very place where she is voided of her power. And yet she's included. This is the kind of unique feature within Brahminical, uh, you know, social structure. And in this logic of graded sovereignty, the untouchable subject is socialized within the Brahminical power, but objectively she bears nothing of sovereignty. So therefore, caste is deeply apolitical, or to put it more appropriately, it is anti-political. Shomabrata Chaudhary has identified this very aspect as included inconsistency. In this graded sovereignty as included inconsistency, one finds it very difficult to think of political subjectivity. Since everyone is included, there is no univocal Brahminical subject of power. Here everyone, including the untouchables, are included in the sovereign structure of caste, and yet they socially own nothing and left without any rights or dignity, whose touch, as believed, is so impure that even it can pollute the water of Ganges. Here, again, one finds the untouchables placed within the fold of Brahminical ideological trope, and yet deprived of the status of a total human being. Now, what does this imply? It simply means that the untouchables are included in the Brahminical subject of power, and this makes the whole scheme of caste immensely difficult to contest, making it all the more difficult to think of a political subject. Whether you name her subaltern or peasant, if you are not taking into consideration the local functioning of you know, Brahminism and graded sovereignty, you end up producing a notion of a subject who is placed in a position of contradiction. So in simple terms, let's say kind of in a bourgeois proletariat. So in contradiction as prevalent in Eurocentric uh, social political thinking, uh, we can see this is operating. So such contradictions 
and and univocal subject of power is relatively easy to contest theoretically as well as as in practice this is why indian post colonial theory has remained largely accumulative ironic and positivistic in nature and the reason is broadly also that they have remained silent about the pervasiveness local brahmanical graded power structure they have produced and also by being silent about it they have also produced a deeply political knowledge but i contend that if we look at the functioning of gradation of power we find a unique social religious entanglement among the hindus this is also the reason why i argued that being in caste one cannot acquire lived experience it means that in order for the lack of freedom in an experience to be registered one has to be in a politically contradictory position but a shudra position is intrinsically linked to a contradiction with the position of ati shudra or the vaishya similarly as vaishya to the kshatriya etc so caste as brahmanism is social gradations and castes as plural are graded only and only contradictory to the caste with which they are sharing boundaries so this brahmanism as an ideology become difficult to contest as it infects each and every caste including the outcasts and denies any univocal subjectivity and yes and this is where i think we need to kind of uh, look at ambedkar uh, that ambedkar had high hopes that this outcast will be able to create a subject position mm-hmm. which is not at all pessimistic but it is a very futuristic it is something which is looking at the present very critically and looking towards future which is more egalitarian it is only by prioritizing anti caste or anti brahmanical thinking and practices that one can think of dalit political subjectivity the method is based upon a politics of contradiction and not graded social mobility within caste position thus ambedkar thinking or even the social thinking of anti caste religions are not limited by the position of social gradation rather it is egalitarian and deeply political in nature because they 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 create a contradiction and come out of the existing graded hierarchical system similarly the protest religion of the matuas create such an anti caste contradiction with an utopia which later gets appropriated within caste by different brahmanical apparatuses like you know economic apparatus political apparatus social apparatus i have actually given this instance more appropriately in that paper explode it and shown that how different apparatuses come back and reinforce brahmanism at a local level thus a social religious thinking which creates a contradiction with the brahmanical society is immediately graded leaving the egalitarian anti caste actors no choice but to strategically sustain their struggle this is how as i explored in my second paper brahmanism wins the caste as gradation and the dalit continues asserting herself as a contradiction to brahmanism so so this is how i think it it operates so thank you rajit for this uh, interesting point about how everyone is included but the power or sovereignty is graded um in your paper uh, you've critiqued post colonial concepts like plurality of life worlds as the post colonial historical difference mm-hmm. which fails to provide mm-hmm. a method to read dalit politics outside the framework of irony 
in doing so you have also hmm. argued that reason has a very different function in anti caste thinking in india and it does not correspond with the post colonial use of reason can you elaborate this while discussing the implication on dalit social thinking and politics yeah yeah thank you so the context in which you know i wrote about reason was a certain version of post colonial theories indispensable and yet inadequate usage of european rationalism so in this usage of reason they this post colonial thinkers they have ignored altogether ignored reason driven critique of marginalized masses against caste predation so the anti caste religion and social thinking is inherently reason driven and they have inspired the marginalized masses for ages long before european colonialism has introduced reason in pedagogy you know and, and and this pedagogic and disciplinary form of uh, you know introduction of reason has been only to a select number of masses who were broadly the upper caste and who are also the direct beneficiaries of european uh, modern thinking now so this suggests that the reason that upper caste developed after coming in contact with the colonizers are not the same as the untouchable critique of social orthodoxy as historic historical actors their priorities were also different and more local and more substantial to the untouchable masses waste is not indispensable and inadequate in the same way as to the post colonial thinkers in dalit thinking the untouchable critique of brahmanical social segregation is dependent on anti caste and social defined religion i argue that these religions are reason and critique driven and socially egalitarian in promise in their defiance of brahmanism so these re- these religions are also able to bring forth a contradiction in the existing socially graded reality of brahmanism and this is a point you know i just explored in a while back that these dalit religions are the ones which are able to create a contradiction uh with that of graded brahmanism and therefore these religions are or these critical religions are not merely you know socio religious or 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 theological in nature but they are deeply political although in some writings in subaltern historiography we do see a conception of political or the conception of uh, rational has been have been redefined while thinking about uh, peasant movement but they have never paid attention and this is very strange they have never paid attention to the anti caste thinking in their critical reading and analysis of the category of pre political in subaltern religious consciousness we do not find the aspect of caste not do we find brahmanical ideology and dalit resistance consciousness even though it is very well established that both the categories of peasant and low caste are not socially distant from each other now i highlighted the anti caste thinking and questioning are found in the stream of bhakti social radicalism until now we find numerous uh, popular bhakti sects which critique caste and social orthodoxies even though they are inconsistently included as hindu a point i discussed earlier scholars like gopal guru has identified this anti caste thinking as heterodox tradition gail ombet calls this as upholders of a rationalist utopia now these sects are found propagating utopic thinking and yet rationally critiquing the present social setup 
because remember this present social setup is that included in consistency so there is a constant tussle even being included and that is what makes it a very inconsistent and yet inclusive system so this rational as well as ecstatic critique of the present i think is deeply political as more than religious such utopia cannot be found in sanskrit or in brahmanical imagination Yes, absolutely. Um, it is interesting to see how these socially defined religions are driven by egalitarian principles and embody reason and critique. Uh, now, mm. you have also argued that the politics and society of West Bengal is unique for resolving caste contradictions. Keeping in mind the matua mm-hmm. question of how they have been submerged into the position of political society or party society. the anti caste activism of matua seems to be indicating alternative politics can you elaborate on this while also discussing the present day bengal politics vis-a-vis the matua question yeah yeah thank you uh, yeah i think this is a nice way of bringing the matua question in it because dalit religion is one of the ways one of the examples um, of dalit religion is that of matua now uh, see bengal i think is an exceptional state and i'm not i'm not going to say that bengal is not an exceptional state like many scholars do claim so but bengal is an exceptional state it is exceptional not because it does not have officially recorded caste violence like other states do but it is mm-hmm. exceptional state for normalizing caste or mm-hmm. or we can also say brahmanical violence mm-hmm. it operates in and 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 this normalization operates in domains of consciousness so let me mm-hmm. unfold this a little more that brahmanism is normal because it is indirect and it remains unconscious and yet vividly real in practice it is indirect and unconscious because it is silent and when publicly practiced at an everyday level it is not given an expressive caste language but in reality not merely in religious practices but also in social cultural political economic intellectual spiritual domains each and every aspect of bengali life is infected by brahmanism and this unexpressed and unrecognized or indirect force has come has become worse by intellectual who have silenced it by not talking about it i am not merely talking about the overbearing you know when i'm saying this i'm not merely talking about the overbearing representation and the networking of these three high castes which is that of in bengal these three castes are called brahman kaistas and vaidyas so i'm not talking about their their linkages and overbearing representations in domains like media praise cinema art literature language academia politics sport economy civil society bureaucracy etc etc even though you know it would be interesting to research on that but i mean to say the indirect forms of brahmanical colonialism which is whether it is invisible or visible has reached to the nooks and corners of bengali society in this context i am reminded of ambedkar's comparison comparison between slavery and untouchability when he says that the condition of the untouchable is worse and more enduring than slavery because it is indirect and the logic of brahmanical servitude keeps the marginalized unconscious of its marginalization i think one can immediately link it with the first answer that we shared on kind of you know brahmanical anti politics that brahmanism causes enslavement but alongside it also deprives the untouchable 
of our consciousness through the logic of servitude. As Ambedkar says, and I quote here, that the untouchables can claim none of the advantages of an unfree social order and are left to bear all the disadvantages of a free social order. End of quote. Mm-hmm. Now, what is this, ad- what is this uh, you know, advantages of unfree social order? Actually, if we think about it, the unfree social order can allow you to do politics if you recognize it as unfree. That is the you know, beginning of politics because that is a contradiction. But in the case of caste or Brahminical servitude, there is no cognitive, there is no cognition about this unfreedom in being a caste, you know, being in caste, because it's only servitude. Now, come back to, let me uh, come back to Bengal, because uh, here I want to link uh, this Ambedkar's distinction between slavery and untouchable to that of Bengal's context. Let us look at it through the logic of representation. What happens, you know, in representation in Bengal? is that, as I already mentioned, that all the powers, social, political, economic, are only enjoyed and maintained by three upper castes, whereas the lower castes and untouchables are hardly present in the high caste-run society. The Bengali society has become all the more exclusive by simultaneously depriving the low caste and the untouchables from representation in positions of power, as well as they have created a secular veil of society. You know, this secular veil uh, is like, it's like as if these positions of cultural, social, economic, and political power are caste-free. Okay? So this veil can also be called as the veil of Bhadralok, which is that of a very popular term, which means gentle folklore. And this caste-free, you know, this, this being Bhadralok as being caste-free, is a very, I think it's a very wrong way of looking at it. So the non-representation of Dalit and the creation of the cultural veil of free from caste framework is most enduring casteism India has seen. Centuries of generations of intellectuals beginning with the social reform to the nationalists and the, to, to the contemporary scholars all have taken benefit of their high caste status but has remained silent about this privilege. To these scholars, caste is a sociological reality, you know, and, and, and information mm. about social reality. And this is not new. And it, it began from 19th century. If you look at the first census, key native upper caste informants like Dinanadhar, Babu Tara Prashad Chatterjee, Rajendra Lal Mitra, Hara Prashad Shastri, all of these begin with these and come to contemporary Bengali scholars. You won't see any change in the caste status of the intellectual, firstly, and the way they study caste. To them, caste is a soci- sociological reality. It's something, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's a kind of distant, experientially distant concept, which can be studied. Even though this, and, 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 and despite having this kind of uh, continuity in their caste status, we do see that there is a constant claim of Bengali society being caste-free. It is actually the opposite. It is the name that in the name of caste-free, they only ensured their hegemony. Close to the idea of, you know, which is very popular and I don't need to explore this much, is that the concept that merit is a neutral concept, which is absolutely absurd. Similarly, that of Bhadralok is a caste-free category is equally problematic because this is a veil of 
casteism this is this is this is they this is veiling the brahmanism which is operating and this is the uniqueness of bengal now let us look at the other side of the story which is that as you rightly pointed out or when you talked about you know the matuas question matu antika thinking so to the untouchable masses or 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 uh, uh to the socially deprived population uh caste is a lived reality you know to them it's not a sociological information to be acquired it is a lived social reality now this lived social reality is kind of can be seen as a service if you have not acquired that awareness or the consciousness that you are as ambedkar has differentiated between slavery and untouchability so so if you are not if we are not able to be aware of uh the lived reality as a, as a lived reality of caste then it is a service and if we are aware about the reality and we are trying to change it is this dalit politics which is that of the ability to kind of recognize caste servitude and not performing caste servitude in a greater fashion so to this untouchable caste uh is a living reality and not social inform sociological information this servitude and deprivation of consciousness have deprived us of our anti-caste vocabulary as well it is no wonder that anti-caste leaders like jogen mondal is not even taught or studied seriously in bengal we do not have any dalit intellectual collective no dalit scholar no critical caste studies or no research center on dalit women life dalit queer dalit environment dalit politics in bengal and nevertheless we have a long history of anti caste struggle in the state sadly they are either appropriated in the language of class or subaltern or etc which are definitely appreciative but we should think of a more inclusive reading of history and politics mm-hmm. so one would sign is the emergence of anti caste dalit literature in in uh, literary public sphere as well which is that which is only a few decades old but it has already worked as an umbrella forum in creating anti caste discourse publicly in bengal you know and that is something we look up to we take our inspiration draw on inspiration from and my work towards thinking about matua you know social visions is actually largely driven by this 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 kind of anti caste collective which has formed in bengal very recently so we are extremely hopeful to see it flourish and become politically powerful too in the coming days so in this context i think matua is significant as an anti caste culture i am not saying that matua have been freed themselves from caste order altogether but principally or theologically they emerge against the caste or that included inconsistency framework what is interesting to see is when matua claims to have an independent cultural religious or social status going outside hindu that means breaking free from that included inconsistency framework it is the first moment of crisis it creates a moment of crisis in brahmanism and i developed this aspect and i find that uh, that the crisis is extremely crucial because without crisis everything is brahmanical in bengal including that of the subaltern consciousness so i i have developed that uh, in that sense where uh, this you know uh, the the instance of goddess uh paying uh, obeisances to goddess or at least keeping the goddess hindu goddess as a part of this strategic uh, kind of you know kind of ways of um, interacting with uh, religious deities in hinduism 
and simultaneously mathu was constantly distancing and contradicting with that of the social visions or or with that of the uh, hindu theological principles or hindu practices as well uh, in the second paper yeah yeah absolutely in fact uh, your uh, point about having an mm. inclusive history is extremely important mm. one so my last question to you would be that you argue that the inability to delineate the complex relations between caste hierarchy and anti caste thinking often leads uh, the analysis to become refied descriptions of the social mm. Mm. can you discuss this while emphasizing on why one must make a distinction between caste politics as a topological extension of the graded social in hindu society mm. and anti caste mm. politics as the desire for separation or exit from such an idea of the social and affirmation of dalit subjectivity based upon equality hmm yeah so the you know uh, this the, there is there is this theoretical debate on recognition redistribution and representation and uh, this debate actually addresses address this issue uh, about uh, a uh, reification of social identity and i borrow this term from nancy fraser who who uh, uh, that uh, who argued that whenever we assert our cultural identity we social reify now i find the scholars on caste politics in india have reflected a certain non effective method in their reading of caste as they do not go beyond and see the source of anti caste logic behind every caste assertion the caste assertion comes from a combination of many factors two predominant factors are that of one is that anti caste desire for equality and two is that certain realized experiences of social depri- deprivation mm-hmm. right so when whereas the upper caste are not deprived of social cultural political capital and thus they can operate on a plane of the so called secular democratic politics but locus assertion is an attempt to see through the uh, formal secular brahmanism and highlight the limit of brahmanical democracy dalit bahujan assertion is thus an expression for the aspiration of gaining social and political capital we must clarify this ground first and then read caste mm-hmm. politics as i as i as i suppose hmm. now the problem with caste politics is that it frequently gets reified within the existing logic of caste thereby limiting its potency for bringing about a change or a democratic revolution in the truest sense even though political empowerment happened to some caste groups through caste assertion it has not been able to move beyond brahmanical fold and create a truly secular democratic order beyond social formation no wonder that ambedkar had to think of navayana buddhism simply because the political assertions have not been able to create a new order mm-hmm. altogether mm-hmm. this is as a, this as i find is the challenge to us the present day social scientists the scholars dalit activists the anti caste desire for social equality and the uh, reification of identity in identity politics and this too have not been have to be worked on so but before we resolve this contradiction and uh, this is not the you know kind of uh, scope for our kind of discussion uh, 
Um, but I think first we need to up, deploy an effective methodology. That is the first, as, as if we are working on uh, you know, critical caste studies, we must deploy an effective methodology and see the formation and mechanism of caste as brahminical gradation and our Dalit Bahujan anti-caste social vision. We need to identify it. So I urge to kind of, you know, all the existing scholars to effectively look for reasons behind Dalit Bahujan's political participation to XYZ party. Instead of declaring that Dalit Bahujan is XYZ party member. So I think I'd like to end with this thought, you know, and uh, this is very interesting. We don't usually hear the caste scholars saying that these or that upper caste, like, you know, Brahman, Kshatriya, Vaishyas are leading these or that party. We only hear that Dalit Bahujans are supporting these or that party. And mm. this is, I think, uh, this raises more questions than the scholars think that they are answering. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rajat. It was indeed a pleasure to have such an interesting conversation with you. Thank you, Divya. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm delighted uh, that uh, to be a part of this conversation. Thank you, Johan. Thank you, EPW Research Radio uh, podcast team. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I thank you for uh, reading the essays so closely and bringing out such, such interesting questions from, the, from those essays. And I really hope that in future we have many more, uh, you know, new works coming on caste mm -hmm. in Bengal and how Brahminism functions in the state, and and many more new works uh, for for the Dalit Bahujan, you know, kind of uh, mm -hmm. anti-caste uh, collective uh, yeah. uh, collectives in India. Thank you so much. Thank you to all the listeners for joining us and you can find the articles discussed in today's episode in the show notes. To experience all that EPW has to offer, head on to epw.in today and subscribe. This is Divya signing off for today.